Thanks for listening to the latest Football Digest podcast available on all podcast platforms. Subscribe now through Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Acast or wherever you get your podcasts from so you don't miss a single episode. Hello and welcome to the Football Digest podcast. I'm your host, Connor Bromley, and I'm joined today by Ned Keating. And there's so much to talk about after a crazy weekend in the Premier League. Of course, technically not finished yet, the weekend of the Premier League. We do have a game tonight, but we'll focus on the matches that have happened. And there's only one place to start, Ned. Uh, Saturday afternoon, half 12 kickoff, famously a half 12 kickoff is both. Jurgen Klopp and Pep Guardiola made it very clear they weren't happy with the kickoff time. Man City drew 1-1 at home against Liverpool, the first time that Man City have dropped points at home in 2023, which, as a Sunderland fan, was a positive because I believe they missed Sunderland's record dating back to the 1890s of consecutive home wins. Sunderland had 24 and Man City's ended at 23, so there's a, a win for me, but... Big result at the top of the Premier League, wasn't it, Ned? What was your overall thoughts seeing a 1-1 draw in that game? I think Liverpool might be the happier of the two teams. Um, to, to you know, to Obviously, whenever you come away with something from the Etihad, I'd, I'd say that's always a positive result. Um, you know, Liverpool, that's not to say that Liverpool were were fortunate to get a point. You know, they did have good chances in the first half. They did create a lot of, of decent chances as well. I think they probably created... Uh, more clear cut openings than, than Manchester City did in that first half. Um, but of course, you know, for for the balance of play, I think, you know, 1-1 one, one is probably the, the fairest reflection on it. City maybe will feel a little bit frustrated. Of course, there was the um, Ruben Diaz's disallowed goal. And again, you know, it's, you know, normally I get happy on this podcast when we don't have to talk about VAR for the first 20 minutes and we're inside the first two minutes this week and, and we're already talking about VAR and, and the goal being disallowed. And it was, I think it was quite soft. And of course, that would have made it different. You know, it would have been 2 new at the time and, and Manchester City could have then kicked on and, I probably would have seen it being quite hard for Liverpool to get back into the game at that point, 2-0 down away at the Etihad. That being said, Liverpool showed good resilience, good battling uh, resilience. And that's going to be something that, that, you know, keeps them in good stead. I think they are going to be in this title race this year. I think that's clear. I think Liverpool back to, uh, or at least approaching back to their kind of uh, 21-22, you know, quadruple chasing uh, best now. And they'll, they'll be in this title hunt for sure this year. And that fact that they kept on battling and kept going and got that late goal as well, um, you know, that, that that resilience, like I said, that's going to really, really help them, I think, throughout this title race, because I think it is going to be quite a, a tight one. And we'll probably talk about the 13 minute uh, a little bit later on on the podcast. But yeah, for Liverpool to, to kind of keep battling away, keep themselves in the game, at least, you know, big positives for them to take from it. City, you know... <laughs> they'll be annoyed that they didn't win it. You know, they had that great chance at the end with Haaland as well, just inches over with the header. Um, and for sure, they'll kind of look back and they'll kind of think that Diaz's goal should have stood. Haaland maybe should have scored at the end. They had other chances as well. Were they able to make the most of it when they seemingly had the def- the Liverpool defence in, in you know, kind of all kinds of knots in, in that first half in particular, Jeremy Doku's pace, um, kind of the outball that he was being used, you know, Liverpool seemed to shackle everyone else and just played this weird tactic of letting Doku have the ball and kind of run at the fence and it did cause him a few problems. But clearly it was a tactic that kind of worked to just shackle everyone else and let Doku have the ball because Liverpool came out of it with a point. So all in all, I think, uh, you know, a, a, a good kind of, it kind of almost feels like that we're still 
if this is a boxing match, we're still in the early rounds and these two are kind of feeling each other out. Um, of course, you know, it's only November. We've still got till May until this. And I think these two are going to be duking it out until round 12, definitely this season. The early kickoff, you know, that, that made a lot of headlines, didn't it? And I had read on the Daily Mirror football website the reason why it was a half 12. The Premier League wanted it to be a half five, but Manchester Police didn't want it. It couldn't be on Sunday because of Man City playing in the Champions League on Tuesday. It obviously wasn't going to be a three o'clock kickoff because it needed to be televised. And also, would Greater Manchester Police have wanted a three o'clock? The difference between three o'clock and half five isn't that great. So while there was a lot of conversation around the half 12 kickoff, effectively, I think the, the broadcasters kind of had their hands tied with it. Do you think it affected the game? Do you think both sides maybe weren't quite 100% at it? I know I've written down here that Pep has claimed that his team only trained for 25 minutes on Friday. I know he likes to maybe be a little bit dramatic. I don't know if that's necessarily a full truth. But what did you make of the early kickoff and do you think it, it changed things? I think it impacted it as a spectacle because the teams didn't have that fluidity that, you know, that kind of, and it, I don't think it would have mattered whether or not it was half five Saturday or 4.30 Sunday. I, I think playing it after an international break denied both teams that opportunity to kind of get back into a rhythm at least uh, and probably robbed us. You know, it's one of the games, you know, even last season when Liverpool weren't at their best, it's probably still a game that you look at and kind of think this is one of the ones that I want to watch as a neutral um, and you kind of circle it when, when the fixtures come out. So for it to take place and it doesn't matter, it could have been tonight at eight o'clock for all that matters. You know, you still wouldn't have had that same fluidity, I think, with those teams and, and yeah, it kind of robbed it as a bit of a spectacle. I think both teams struggled. Um, perhaps one or two of the South American players again playing a little bit later than some of the European players and in that you know the travel that comes with it as well Alisson being the case in point is kicking uh, particularly in the first half kind of really gave Manchester City a, a lot to go at um, and of course the opportunity to to take the lead as well you know kind of stemmed from a poor Alisson kick um, was that perhaps down to you know you can't say ring rust because he was playing in the week, but you know, everything that comes with it, traveling so far, traveling back so far, playing late, um, you know, readjusting to the time difference as well. Did that probably affect him in the first half? Potentially, because, you know, he's normally one of the best goalkeepers with the ball at his feet and he looked far from it at the weekend. Um, you know, and there's other players as well that I think it impacted. And yeah, you kind of just feel, you know, as a, as a product and as a spectacle, you kind of feel just a little bit let down. But like I said there, it doesn't matter if it was, you know, half five Saturday or 4.30 Sunday or 8 o'clock Monday, it still would have been that same. You still would have had the same impact and um, that, you know, playing it so soon after the international break, the first game back after the international break for both teams, that it would have had that same, you know, lack of fluidity between the players because they haven't had that chance. You know, Pep there saying only training for 25 minutes, he's probably not wrong, you know. You kind of think how long do footballers train for and and kind of everything else, you know. In one big group session, they probably only had a 25-minute scrimmage match, you know, and that's about it. Everything else is kind of, you know, goalkeepers might go off and work on a few little things as well. Actually, he's probably not wrong that they only had 25 minutes together. Um, and it's just, you know, you, we all know what it's like when, you know, you even come back from work after a couple of weeks on holiday, you know, and you need to kind of, when you've been in a different zone or even when you've been away on, on work trips or whatever, to kind of get back in the swing of things. It takes a little bit of time and, and neither team was afforded that with this game taking place as the first match back after the international break. You, know, you mentioned before about the, the goal that Man City had disallowed. I thought it was very telling the Manchester City reaction to that. You know, Nathan Ackney after the game saying that, you know, while they thought it might be harsh, it didn't actually 
you know, he didn't think that was the reason why Manchester City didn't win the game. And you look at that reaction compared to maybe the reaction we saw from Mikel Arteta, or even this weekend, the reaction Steve Cooper had to a penalty decision, which I actually think the referees got right. Sean Dyche yesterday was complaining for the penalty that was awarded against them, which I believe was a correct decision as well. Do you think Man City consciously went and didn't criticise the referees after the game almost as a a sign of we're bigger than this, you know, we affect it ourselves and we're not going to allow referees to become the, the storyline. Well, I think the important bit in your question there is, um, you know, it's not going to, we're not going to let it affect us. Um, there's 38 games in the Premier League season. You know, you can be upset and, and you know, we'll go back years and there's always been instances of perhaps decisions going against teams. And that's fine. If you want to come, come create a whole narrative about the world's against us, and that's, you know, kind of almost create a siege mentality. That's that's what some managers want to do. Others might decide that 38-game season, some will go for us, some will go against us. It will work itself out in the end. All's fair. And we've got, you know, 37 more chances to get it right. You know, you can't go... I'm not suggesting for a second that if we get to the end of the season and Arsenal miss out for a point that Mikel Arteta is going to go, well, you know, that game at Newcastle, that's what cost us the title because they've had so many, you know, six months between then and the end of the season. They would have had enough chances to do enough and try it to get it right and get themselves over the line. But it does lead to that kind of idea that that might happen and that it's safe to go, well, we didn't win the title because this goal was disallowed back in November and it doesn't make sense, you know. Maybe when we get a little bit closer to the running um, and, and closer to, to May, maybe Manchester City's outlook might change a little bit if they need, um, you know, if it's still tight at the top and, and the games are going their way or, or games are being decided by tight margins in terms of tight calls and they're dropping points when otherwise they might have gone on to win if the call was wrong. We might see a different change in mentality there and they might start calling the referees out there. But, you know, come on, like I said, it's November. There's still enough time for you to impact it yourself. You can impact this title race. Don't have to worry about refereeing decisions. You just play your best week in, week out, and that should be enough to get your open line. And I think that's where Manchester City's heads are at in a minute. So speaking of title race, we've got new leaders this weekend. Arsenal went to Brentford, a tricky looking game. One of them games you looked at and thought, could it be, you know, drop points for Arsenal? Um, you know, a tough place to go. But Arsenal came through it, a 1-0 win. Kai Havertz scored the goal. What's your thoughts of Arsenal, you know, going there and getting such a positive result, but also Kai Havertz scoring an important goal after a really... I'd say a difficult spell at Arsenal, but really it's a difficult last two years he's had in football. Well, if we start with Arsenal first, um, you know, it kind of, it doesn't seem like it's, and I don't mean this as in, like when I say, oh, it doesn't seem as much of a surprise now. But you go back two years and Arsenal still had this soft underbelly and Saturday night under the lights at Brentford, tough game, huffing and puffing away. It's kind of, you know, it's almost reminiscent of that when when they went there two years ago, isn't it? And they had the Friday night lights and they, and they got shocked by Brentford. 2-0 and they just didn't look like they fancied it at all. But now this Arsenal team, there is this resilience in there. There is this resolve. And again, you know, kind of games are like away to Crystal Palace last season, starting that away. Um, a game that, you know, they, they'd lost the previous campaign and they do that Friday night under lights and they look a different team and they look a different team now as well. The mentality's changed, you know. And I know there have been a big turnover of players, but I think they all believe now and they all kind of all have this winner's mentality, winner's attitude. And they kept going and they kept plugging away and kept finding it. And of course, there, as you say, Kai Habits getting the important goal for him um, and getting the winner for him. Habits that will do his confidence, the world of good. Um, 
you know, it's funny, we're sat here and we're saying, you know, he's had a difficult start to his Arsenal career, but he's, you know, he's getting the goals for them. He's got enough goals already for Arsenal that to suggest that it isn't as bad as perhaps, you know, we're kind of making it out at, at times that, you know, oh, he's been, been a dreadful signing. He's still bedding in. Um, you're right that he has been, have we seen the best of Havertz, what's been expected of Havertz, you know, over the last couple of years, hasn't found his form at Chelsea, but that's because he's probably being played at position as a, as a false nine where that's probably not playing to his strengths. So he's kind of square peg round hole there. Arsenal, he's still trying to find his place in the team. Nick Arteta sees him, you know, I think he's probably played in about six different positions already for Arsenal, played sent me, played in 10, played on the wing, played, you know, as a false nine at times as well. So that's the difficulty for him is, you know, kind of trying to find the consistency in his game. It will come when he finds a consistent position on the pitch, you know, being moved about, it, it doesn't help. But of course, you know, when you do score, when you do score such an important goal, that also then allows you to build that confidence and kind of, you know, think oh, I can be a part of this team moving forward. I can be a key man for this team moving forward. So the goal will help him, but he just still needs to find, or at least Mikel Arteta needs to find that kind of home for him in his squad, work out exactly what his role is and how he contributes to this thing going forward. And then maybe we can start to see, start to see at least uh, the, the return of Kai Havertz to the form that we know and, and, and the kind of level that we know that he has within him. Played at left back as well, didn't he, in the week for Germany? So, you know, there's another position that if Sinchenko picks up a knock, uh, you could see him down there. But Aaron Ramsdale uh, came in. Obviously, David Rea was not allowed to play because he's on loan from Brentford. He had a shaky moment in there. Um, I think it will have done him the world of good that that didn't go in. I think if that had went in, you would have really feared for him. But it does feel like Ramsdale's time at Arsenal you know, it's coming to an end. I've seen a lot of sort of talk around this potentially being even his last game for Arsenal um, heading into the January window. Are you surprised considering where we were with Aaron Ramsdale? He's recently signed a new contract as well at Arsenal. Are you surprised that this is how it's sort of ending for him as Arsenal's keeper? Yeah, because, you know, I know there's a kind of a few Arsenal fans like to point out his flaws on social media and kind of point to, I think it was the game against Southampton, wasn't it, particularly last season, where um, put him in a sticky situation quite early on with a poor pass out from the back and Charlie Alcaraz um, finding the back of the net and punishing him for it. But, you know, he's he's been a very good player for Arsenal. And, you know, if me and you sat down in the summer and said, where do Arsenal need to strengthen to go to that next level? I don't think either of us would have been sat going, yeah, they need a new goalkeeper and they need to replace Aaron Ramsdale. And it felt at the time like it was, you know, money being spent in the position that they need. I still think that they need another striker. I don't think, you know, they have, Gabriel Jesus hasn't proved this prolific yet, but he's also been quite injury prone. I think they could have done with a striker in the summer over another goalkeeper. Now, that's not to say that David Raya isn't going to be the difference making between them winning the title or not this season. He could well prove to be that. But it just felt at the time that there was maybe other positions that Arsenal could have invested in first before, you know, kind of, it's, it's like when you move into a house, isn't it? You kind of, you know, you want to look around and it's almost like you're kind of decided to build a man cave down the bottom of your garden before, you know, all the basics inside your house are sorted. I think there was other other issues for Arsenal to, to definitely spend their money on first. Um, for Aaron Ramsdale, well, I think it's quite clear, isn't it? The writings on the wall. Um, yeah, nice that he got a clean sheet the weekend so that he could probably sign off from his Arsenal career on a high, but needs to be looking in January. The question is where and who, you know, you kind of go around, He'll want to keep himself in the in the upper echelons of the Premier League. The issue is, is that every other club that's near the top of the table has a goalkeeper that's very good. So he won't be going there. You know, then you start to look at could it be a move to West Ham or or a club like that that kind of 
on the fringes of trying to get into that that kind of top seven, as it were, in the league. Can he could he do a job for them? And he and he would. But then you know, Alfonso Ariola is is the number one that they're clearly trusting, and he's been there for a number of years, and this has been the plan all along. Um, you know, and you start going through the rest of the teams in the Premier League, and you're not sure whether or not Ramsdale would perhaps take that move. Does he then move abroad? Does he look at you know other opportunities around the world? And it's kind of um, even those clubs as well, some of the clubs that you'd like to think that he's perhaps good enough to play for, you kind of go, well, no, they've got a goalkeeper, they've got a good goalkeeper. You know, the one might be, <laughs> bizarrely, and, um, you know, I'm not touting him for a move there, but you look at kind of the ages of the goalkeepers and, and maybe the style of goalkeeper that they want. I know Bayern Munich looked a lot at Jordan Pickford in the past because they liked how he could play out from the back and his range of passing. That might be one for Aaron Ramsdale to look at. Manuel Neuer's not getting any younger, is he? Bless him. Um, so, so that might be... You know, I, I don't think I've seen too many stories suggesting Bayern Munich, but it wouldn't, for me, at least, be on the realms of possibility that it could be there because of, of who they were linked with previously in the past. So, yeah, it's, it's that kind of thing for Ramsdale. Will he move to a Premier League club? I don't know. I don't think it will be a permanent move if it is anyway. It might just be uh, a move for six months to put himself, um, you know, playing regular game time ahead of the Euros because that's the crucial thing as well. It's the Euros this summer. Um, I mean, I don't think he's going to break into the England squad anyway. I think it's quite clear who Gareth Southgate has as his number one. And, and Aaron Ramsdale could still have been Arsenal's number one. And I still don't think he would have moved above Jordan Pickford in the England pecking order. But he still wants to keep his name in that conversation at least. And and to be playing regular football, he'll need to to move in January. And whether it's a loan or, or a permanent switch remains to be seen. But bless him. You know, I thought he did quite well at Arsenal. I thought it was quite harsh when he was placed in the summer by David Raya. Uh, Mikel Arteta clearly made his mind up and, and that's the way that he's decided to go. I enjoyed the comparison between David Raya and a man cave. I thought it's just a niche a niche reference. You can tell you had somebody who's just moved house who's clearly got that on the brain. We'll switch tack though. Everton, um, a 3-0 defeat at home against Manchester United. You know, and I think the feeling going into this game from most was that the crowd at Everton, the hostile atmosphere, the fact that this was the first game after the points deduction, the fact that it was Manchester United, which is obviously a big game, an evening kickoff as well it all kind of pointed towards Everton having a heroic performance, the kind of performance we've seen them have at Goodison Park before against the big boys, where they really turn up and, and the crowd almost acts as the 12th man and they get the win. And fair play to Manchester United. You know, they're, they're a team that has had a lot of criticism. Eric Ten Hag's had a ton of criticism this season. And I think the expectation this weekend was that they would go to Everton and they would lay a stinker and probably get beat one or two nil. I think that's what more, what most people thought, but they played an excellent game of football, helped, of course, by a stunning Alejandro Garnacho goal early in the game, but they took the sting out of the game, and I thought that this was a true sign that we are seeing the Manchester United that we saw last season in this performance. I thought it was a, a really telling result at Goodison Park. I think that goal definitely helped them on their way. You know, anytime, you know, managers go away to what they expect to be a hostile atmosphere. Um, and we were expecting that Goodison and we saw all the protests before kickoff and even during the game as well. Um, that That's what they turned up in. But what you want to do is silence the crowd at the earliest opportunity and you could hear a pin drop after Garnacho's goal went in, couldn't you? Um, you know, the only noise that you could probably hear at the end was coming from the Manchester United away fans. Brilliant goal, fantastic goal. And he gave Manchester United that platform then. You know, you want to do that. You want to silence the home crowd early on. 
brilliant goal, fantastic goal, and it did exactly that. And, you know, for Everton, they would have been the reverse of it. You know, it's kind of one of those big games, those games where you want to deliver a big performance. So that's when you say, look, let's keep it tight about they can see anything. There's nothing they could have done, bless them, about that goal. Let's be frank. Um, you know, Gary Neville on commentary joking that he even thought Roy Keane might try and say that the goalkeeper should be doing better at half-time. And Keane, even himself admitting, no, no one could have done anything about that. You could have stuck two goalkeepers in there and wouldn't be safe. It was a brilliant goal, but it's the timing of it. You know, that goal could be scored later on in the game and it wouldn't have given that same impact to Manchester United of quieting the Everton crowd. And also, you know, giving them that kind of, you know, settling them down, calming any nerves that they would have had and being able to kind of lay the bedrock for them to be able to kick on from that point uh, and go and get the win. Um, you know, I, I've raised this point a couple of weeks back on, on the last Premier League review podcast that we did. And I said, you know, have we been perhaps a little bit harsh on Manchester United? Yes, look, no denying that they have played awful football and stayed in the room out of times this season. But you look at it now, and they're only six points off top, two points away from Spurs who were being lauded as this great side. And that's it, isn't it? It's funny how things can change very quickly. Three straight defeats for Tottenham and they're outside the top four now and, and Manchester United, momentum is behind them and that's the crucial thing. They might be playing poorly. I mean, they did play well yesterday, but even, you know, I think we were talking about the game at Luton in a couple of weeks back and they didn't play the best in that one. By any stretch of the imagination. But it doesn't matter. They forget about that performance because now they've got momentum behind them. You know, we talk about that game in two years' time. Oh, Manchester United beat Luton 1-0. We won't remember the performance, probably. We'll just talk about, you know, what's in the history books. And that's it at this point. Get the wins, get the wins, get the wins. Start building momentum behind you. And they have that momentum now. And they are, you know, the form side in the Premier League, isn't it? You know, last five, they're, they're to- uh, last six, sorry, they're top of the form table. So there is momentum behind this Manchester United side now. They clearly and obviously still have work to do. But they can't be any as, as bad for the rest of the season as they have been already. Surely they've had their bad games and they've got them out of the way, which then makes me start to think, you know, can they? Could they? I'm not saying that they will, but could they force their way into the title picture? You know, we'll talk about how great Liverpool are, how great Manchester City are looking, Arsenal are looking, and Manchester United have been awful in comparison, and yet they are still there or thereabouts. There's going to be a point where it clicks from this year. There's going to be a point where they start to look like a fluid team. Maybe that was yesterday where it's kind of all starting to come together for them. And that's a scary then prospects because if they're picking up the wins and yes, they've not, you know, perhaps played as many difficult sides as the others yet. And they've still got more difficult games to come between now and, and Christmas for sure. But the scary thing is, is that it might just click and they've got the results to keep them in that picture even before it's clicked for them. Again, I cannot stress this enough. I am not saying Manchester United will win the title this year, but they'd be surprised if they get themselves into the top four because they have the momentum behind them. And I think they're starting to build something slowly, surely, and hopefully the performances start to come on a more consistent basis for them. And then they might, might just be able to get themselves in the outside picture for the title race. Yeah, I'm still not really sold on on Manchester United being there. Um, being the real deal. I know you're not necessarily saying they're the real deal, but I, I just... I just think that the performances have been so poor this season. And the one, you know, yesterday, that performance was excellent. And, you know, and I would say that's probably the best I've seen Manchester United play this season. But my my concern is, is I just think that they haven't deserved the points tally that they've got. And that can work too. It can either work the way that you're saying, that they haven't played well all season and then they'll find form and they'll they'll kick on and have a really good season. Or they continue to play not that great and eventually results catch up with them. I mean, I would say... I don't know this for a fact, but I imagine if you looked at the advanced data behind Manchester United, I suspect they're probably a few points ahead of where the statistics would put them. Um, just one other quick point on this. Everton, um, 
a minor bump for them? Or is this something maybe more concerning? Because you, everyone felt there would be such a positive reaction to such negative news. And I actually think Everton were undone by Manchester playing well, but also they didn't find the levels that we've seen them have in the last few weeks. I thought it was actually from there and quite a disappointing performance. Do you think that it's concerning that maybe while everyone has said they were going to have a good reaction to this, the reality could be that the 10 points has knocked the stuffing out of them. The progress of the last month where they've picked up a lot of points um, is maybe come unstuck and it's going to have a negative effect on them for the rest of the season. The thing about a siege mentality, which is, I think, what they were trying to create there, um, you know, with the news and, and the 10 point deduction, is that siege mentality can often be quite it can be quite fragile as well. All it takes is one defeat and that siege mentality is gone. It's a big game for Everton this weekend, a huge game. I know we don't ordinarily talk about, you know, the weekend previews on the, on the Monday show, but this is a huge game for Everton up against Nottingham Forest this weekend. You know, the, the thing is, is that they would have, you know, I, I think most of us probably, you know, we've read the script before and probably expected, as you said there, a, a, a battling performance from Everton and a 1-0, 2-1 win against Manchester United. You know, we've seen that script enough times before. That's kind of how we thought that game was going to go. It hasn't. You know, Manchester United are a better team than Everton. That's that's plain to see. So I think they kind of just have to put this game into context and then move on from it very quickly. You know, oh no, we've lost a team in the top four. You know, it's not a disaster. They'll lose to other teams in the top four this season, for sure. This game against Nottingham Forest, a team who, you know, will be potentially scrapping around at the bottom, uh, uh, you know, fighting for their lives along with Everton this season. This is the game where you need to to get something from it. One point isn't enough for Everton this weekend. It, it has to be a win. So they have to quickly dust themselves down, go again. And I think this weekend might be an even bigger test. You know, we were expecting a siege mentality. I think it got broken by that wonder goal from Garnacho because that just completely... Changed the game, Manchester United settled down and Everton were kind of then chasing it from there on. And they weren't able to find the performance level that they wanted to, to chase the game. But it's now, you know, that game's gone. They lost to a team that finished in the top four as a Champions League side last year. This is a team that's battling with them to avoid relegation to the championship that they've got coming up. This is a bigger game for them. This is a huge, huge game. And I think we'll learn a lot more about where this Everton side are come eight o'clock Saturday night. Speaking of um, poor performances, Chelsea dropped an absolute stinker at Newcastle. Yeah, you thought I was going to go Spurs there. But no, Chelsea dropped a, a stinker at St. James's Park. I've actually wrote Chelsea won 4 one year on my running order. So that was maybe some wishful thinking there coming from a Sunday fan. But um, Pochettino said it was the worst performance of the season. It's kind of hard to argue against that. Everything kind of went wrong. Rhys James got a red card as well for, I would say, a stupid red card, actually. He's, he's pulled back on, I think it was Lewis Hall. Might be another one, can't remember now. But he's pulled back anyway on the on the break, was was stupid. He should just let him go. Before one, um, it's, it feels always with Chelsea, one step forward, one and a half steps back. You know, they, they just can't find a rhythm. And when you think, well, maybe they could push you know, for top six, that performance against Man City, you think, oh, you know, maybe this is a Chelsea team that could actually, you know, force their way into the conversation for the top four, but then they go to Newcastle and drop such a stinking performance. Um, what do you make of Chelsea and, and 
as I said, that the sort of one step forward, one and a half back mentality that they seem to have at the moment. No, I think you're completely spot on there. It kind of seems that, you, you know, she said, oh, they turned the corner. Oh, they might be challenging. And she said they're for European places and then they go and do that. And it's it's happened a couple of times this this season. I think there was always a thing where, aside from the Tottenham game, where they had opportunities to break into the top 10 for the first time this season, they always managed to fluff their lines and, and not do it. Um, it is disappointing because of the momentum that I think was building behind Chelsea going into the international break, you know. A draw, they should have won that game really against Arsenal, let's be honest, but a draw all the same against Arsenal. Um, the victory at Spurs, I'm not saying this is a Spurs day, I think we can all agree that they were probably quite fortunate in the end to win by the manner that they did because it took so long to work out how to play against nine men. Plot twist, it's to pass the ball around and create the spaces, um, especially when they're playing on the halfway line and you've got players like Raheem Sterling, you either knock it about or you knock it long, <laughs> it's one of the two, and it took them half an hour to work that one out, so that was quite impressive. Um, but the game against Manchester City, that that was where you kind of go, right, okay now, hello, have, have Chelsea finally turned up? Are we starting to see the real Chelsea under Mauricio Pochettino? Um, and then it just all fell apart at Newcastle. Um, you know, she said there, Reese James, captain, you kind of want your captains to do a little bit better than that, don't you? You know, kind of be a little bit more switched on, uh, perhaps, than that. And and now without him for, for a few games as well. Um, and I think, you know, I know Thiago Silva doesn't have the armband, um, but at least they have him and he's a bit of a leader for them. But otherwise, I think there's a bit of a leadership void at Chelsea in terms of like, actual out-and-out leaders. So that might hurt them um, for the next few weeks being without their captain, Rhys James. Um, and yeah, it's another... You know, the next game for Chelsea is another big one. They need to kind of, you know, much like Everton, need to shake off the Man United defeat. I think Everton, um, Chelsea need to do the same as well. Just put it in a box, never look at it again and just move past it and pretend that it never happened. Um, because, yeah, that was, as you said at the start, one step forward for Chelsea, but one of the half steps back this weekend. Um, and they need to kind of, I don't know, consistency, I think, is is probably still the issue for Chelsea at this point. They, they need to find that, need to find consistent performances to give them a consistent result to start moving around the table a little bit more consistently. Newcastle, formidable at home, I would say. Just every time they're at home, it feels like they're going to win. Um, but their owner did come out and criticise the crowd, or the, the fans at the weekend, which I found surprising. You beat Chelsea fall on at home and your reaction is to say, why is the crowd so quiet? And I think as well, when you kind of just think of Newcastle and St. James's Park and them winning games of football, you just kind of accept that the atmosphere will be good. But maybe is there almost complacency in that fan base now that this is almost an expectation because they've done so well over the last couple of years that, well, not a couple of years, last year or so, that this is what's to be expected. I mean, I was just surprised to see a club which has such positivity around it to see the owner come out and, and criticise the fans after a 4-1 home win. I just thought it was weird well it always is weird whenever boards start criticising fans doesn't matter if you know that you might be losing games left right and centre or if you're winning them it just never seems like it's a smart move because these are the guys who arguably are you know in terms of kind of you know on the pitch you actually can earn money from from prize money etc but you know fans are perhaps your most consistent form of revenue they'll turn up every week they'll buy shirts they'll buy other bits of merchandise so you kind of want to keep them happy and on site. So to come out and go, oh, you weren't really loud enough at the weekend. It's an interesting tactic, at least. Um, maybe he's hoping to kind of whip them into a frenzy for the next home game. Um, and you know, the byproducts of, of it, or the negative byproducts that we're going to see from it, he weren't expecting, anticipating, uh, or they weren't an- expecting and anticipating. So it is strange. Um, you know, like you said, it's 
not necessarily from the traditional playbook of, of ownership, um, criticising the fans. Uh, never normally ends well for those that have done it in the past. Um, who knows, maybe we might see it different this time around. But yeah, she said that, you know, it kind of almost takes the gloss off the win a little bit, I think, doesn't it? You know, to kind of, oh, we were great. Oh, what a fantastic game that was. And then you kind of, you know, as a Newcastle fan and you go and see those comments afterwards and you'd be a little bit... All right, okay, well, it's, it's no need for that. You know, we've had a great game, great atmosphere, and, and now you kind of, you know, smashed out to pieces with your comments. Um, so, yeah, I wouldn't have necessarily done that myself, and it'll be interesting to see what the atmosphere is like next time at St. James's Park. Okay, we'll switch now to your team, Spurs. 2-1, third straight defeat. Um, it looked so promising, early doors. Spurs, I think, start the game quite well, went 1-0 up. Um, got fortunate with a, a VAR dis- well, not fortunate it was a correct decision but Ollie Watkins had a goal disallowed after a, a very lengthy VAR check but eventually fell to a, a 2-1 defeat against Aston Villa side which looks like could be the real deal Unai Emery after the game said he doesn't think they're contenders for the top four but I think that's just a little bit gamesmanship from him I think clearly Aston Villa look a decent side this season Um, but from a Spurs perspective is it time to be a little bit worried yeah because you know for a team that started the season so brightly um you know confidence will have gone from this side now and I think Angeball if we can still call it that um relies quite a lot on swagger and confidence and it'll be a big test now for Spurs um, just a small matter of going away to the to defending champions the team that won the treble last year just a just a small matter of that in the next game and you know, being low on confidence going away to Manchester City, that's going to be fun. Um, thankfully, I won't be on the podcast next week. Otherwise, you might be seeing me in floods of tears. Um, it is a worry for Spurs because you need to arrest it quickly. Um, you know, as much as winning is a, is a great habit, losing is a bad one and Spurs are in it. Um, you know, I was, I was watching the game yesterday and the chances that we missed early on, I kind of knew, you know, we might have taken the lead and we did. But the chances that we missed, I have watched enough of Tottenham Hotspur and other football games throughout my lifetime to know how the script goes in that you end up losing those games where you hit the post, have a hat full of chances. Danny, um, Emi Martinez was playing brilliantly um, yesterday as well. You know, fantastic display from him in goal. And you kind of just knew, you know, oh, I've seen this story before, um, you know, an episode that I've watched previously of Spurs. And yes, that's that's exactly what happened. Villa, I think, were good value in the end, played well. Defensively, I think Spurs have a lot of questions to answer for that second goal in particular, but even the first one as well. Pau Torres, you know, almost, pretty much almost a free header. I'm not sure what Vicario was doing. He kind of came and went. He never, never hesitate as a goalkeeper because as soon as you do that, you're in trouble. And lo and behold, he was. And, and the second, um, you know, it just seemed like no one knew who to pick up Watkins, you know, both times, you know, kind of, he just kind of seemed a bit too free, didn't he? When he first laid the ball off and, and then received the ball again the second time. It is concerning. Spurs do have an injury crisis, you know, playing a fourth choice centre-back and a right-back at centre-back yesterday. Not ideal. Um, and it's only, you know, I'd like to be positive about Spurs and happy about Spurs. Um, but yeah, going away to Manchester City on Sunday makes me fear uh, for what could happen. Yeah, Son as well scored the most unfortunate hat-trick. <laughs> VR disallowed hat-trick. Um, thanks, Ned, for joining me this morning. And thanks, everybody, for watching. We'll catch you next time. <laughs>